Hello and welcome to this month's edition of the CPHI podcast. I'm Gareth Carpenter, Farmer Editor at Informer Markets, and it's time to shine a light over the CDMO arena and how mergers and acquisitions are reshaping this growing but still highly fragmented sector of the pharmaceutical industry. The contract development and manufacturing organization market is projected to grow just short of 158 billion US dollars by 2025 at a CAGR of 6.9% amid increasing appetite from biopharm and pharma companies to outsource their manufacturing. In many cases, M&A gives companies the opportunity to expand their reach beyond certain geographies or beef up their service offerings with additional capabilities in the development and manufacturing chain. I'd like to introduce my guest, Kevin Bottomley, partner at global corporate advisory firm focused on healthcare and life science companies Results Healthcare. Kevin has over 30 years experience working in the healthcare sector, principally with pharmaceutical, biotech, business consultancy and M&A transaction advisory companies. He's been involved in the successful transaction of many businesses, acting as advisor to investors, major pharmaceutical and biotech, as well as service companies to the life sciences industries. At Results Healthcare, Kevin has worked on numerous divestments, acquisitions and collaborations within the pharma industry. Kevin, welcome to the CPHI podcast and thank you for joining us here today. Good to be here, Gareth. So to start with Kevin, when companies embark on an, an M&A strategy, what's the rationale for it? What are the sort of the main sort of considerations for them? I think I've divided this into really two basic drivers. One is defensive. And just quickly to cover that, you tend to see situations where maybe two quite large similar companies will merge with really the intent of defending sales getting cost efficiencies by removing sort of overlapping activities and really sort of improving the performance of the company by just simply sort of putting two companies together. These tend to go through sort of peaks and troughs. And at the moment, we're not seeing a lot of those. I think the last one I would probably sort of point to was probably Takeda and Shire. More interesting and probably um, the the sort of deals that we tend to get more involved in is the um, deals where people are making acquisitions to grow the company. And these tend to be really by either acquiring capabilities that they don't have. And in some cases, this is maybe if it's a large pharma company, there are a lot of acquisitions of biotechs where they're basically acquiring pipeline and sort of candidate drugs. Or in some other areas, like, for instance, the CDMO space, where they are acquiring capability, geographical reach as well, or technologies. Um, A lot of this is to do with acquiring know-how and technologies, which they don't actually already have. So those tend to be, I think, the general drivers for M&A. But they're really underpinned by a desire to grow the business. When we talk about pharma M&A, perhaps the first thing that springs to mind is the mega mergers within big pharma. But as we know, there's many more layers than that. For example, CDMOs, clinical research organisations, device companies, tech companies, to name but a few. Kevin, could you give us a a brief overview of the pharma M&A space and, and the various subtypes of acquisition? Predominantly at the moment, I would say that pharma is looking for pipeline. They are focused really on either in licensing or acquiring biotech assets or assets from small pharmaceutical companies. 
the major pharmaceutical companies are driven by innovation and it is very, very difficult to fund that innovation through their internal efforts. And more and more that is becoming ex externalized. The real source of innovation is really biotech at the moment. And really a, lot, a large effort of the large pharmaceutical companies is to acquire those assets as I said, through either licensing deals or through just pure M&A or pure acquisition. On the other side of this, there is this concept within large pharma of really activities which are core and then non-core activities. And over time, certain activities or certain assets which were core to the business become non-core. And that tends to precipitate divestments are essentially, in some cases, these activities are stopped. But in most cases we see now, these are externalized. And this is one of the areas that we get involved in is helping large pharma companies divest non-core assets. And these can be products. Sometimes they can be research programs. You know, there can be a change of focus in terms of where the company is focusing its research. And this leads to some programs which are no longer core to the company but can be externalized and obviously one area that we've we've been heavily involved in is is manufacturing and um, you know what tends to happen here is that pharma likes to keep manufacturing for key assets key products to keep them in some sense close to themselves but as these products go off patent become less important to the company then the manufacturing and supply chains which they've built up and internalized they then sort of i think seek to externalize these i see kevin at high level when we talk about the main drivers of mergers and acquisitions within the, the pharma industry the conversation never strays too far away from things such as innovation synergy mm -hmm. portfolio management etc does this still broadly hold true today or are there any other new emerging factors? I mean, are we simply seeing investors, for example, targeting markets with high revenue potential? Investors are more interested in this sector. Um, I think to go back to the first point you made about innovation, innovation is for the large pharmaceutical companies the primary driver. Access to innovation is always something that they're seeking to achieve. I think what one interesting area at the moment is cell and gene therapy, which is, is sort of challenging for large pharma because there are some fundamental challenges to the general model of pharmaceuticals or provision of pharmaceuticals. But I think what large pharma recognizes is this is a developing area. Innovation at the moment is not within pharma companies, but they will seek to acquire this. And we can see that there are situations where large pharma companies are acquiring are now acquiring assets in this sort of space, essentially to access innovation. So that's a principal driver of pharma companies. Clearly, there's the other drivers also just can be sort of getting sort of geographical reach and can be just sort of getting top line and bottom line revenue. But as I said earlier, those tend to be more defensive. But certainly at the moment, large pharma is constantly they're always having this sort of debate when it comes to new technologies so kevin um how is entry into the u.s market and the macro changes affecting the m a market 
for example, you know, we're seeing a certain amount of protectionism and a desire for local supply chains. Is this driving a beta premiums on US manufacturing sites, um, especially for those in areas of short supply? You know, we're hearing a lot about you know, bottlenecks in the CGT space, for example. I think you're absolutely right. Over the last few years, there has been a sort of a First of all, I think a repatriation. At the early noughties, a lot of um, manufacturing business went out to Asia and to China, and that is gradually being repatriated. The initial drivers for this were, were, were frankly costs. In the early days, the business went to those countries because they were essentially low cost. Um, now what's happened is that the costs in those areas are increasing. Also, there have been some issues with compliance and safety for some of these products and you know the regulatory authorities have uh, you know there's been a sort of a long string of um, situations where Indian and Chinese companies have received sort of warning letters from the FDA for instance so fixing those sorts of problems tends to be sort of quite tricky and for pharma I think supply of products is key and now have a situation where in Asia, costs are increasing and there's a concern that the supply chains are just too stretched out and too vulnerable. So layer on that, obviously, the how would you say what has happened with COVID, where there has been a real focus on the ability to manufacture drugs. I think COVID has demonstrated, I think, the real pluses that the pharmaceutical industry can bring, the innovation, the speed, the you know, the the, the sheer ability to sort of really address a global pandemic. It has also sort of highlighted some, I would say, more nationalistic feelings. You know, we've seen examples in Europe with the EU threatening to sort of not um, withhold supplies of um, vaccines to the UK. You know, India has stopped um, out um, sending supplies of vaccine from the Serum Institute. So I think there is a, a, a real sort of a view now that if you have supply chains which are really completely outside your country, that you are to some extent vulnerable. And um, I, I think what we will see is both in the US and in Europe, there will be a, a, a focus on supplying supply um, of key drugs. And these can be both innovative drugs, but in a lot of cases, they're, they're generic drugs, you know, they're antibiotics. Um, there, are, there are medicines which really have been around for a long time, but, you know, over years have migrated out to China and India because of the, they, 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 they have been the low cost suppliers. But I think those are now being repatriated back to um, Europe. And in terms of the US, yes, there is definitely one of the questions we get asked is, you know, uh, do you have any manufacturing facilities in the US? You know, it 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 is ab absolutely almost the um, first question. The second question is, do you have any um, manufacturing facilities for sale in in Europe? You know, so so clearly, um, there the, there is going to be a focus on re-establishing supply chains into uh, and manufacturing in those geographies. And if we could focus, Kevin, on, say, the next two to three years in terms of, of M&A in this space, I mean, where do you foresee the most focus? Um, for example, a large proportion of M&A deals within the CDMO sector happen in the higher cost markets and locations such as North America and Western Europe. What are the implications of this? First of all, we talk about manufacturing. It's an incredibly attractive market for investors. 
for several reasons. First of all, the fundamentals are that populations are getting bigger, they're getting older, so they need more medicines. And what we're tending to find is that also Big Pharma, which has manufactured a lot of these products, is outsourcing more and more. And if you put those all together, you you end up with a carga for manufacturing, which is head of sort of general sort of um, GDP growth globally or um, in, in any country. So as a sort of a, an investment area, it's incredibly attractive. Now, that that's the positive. The, ne- the negative is that it's highly regulated. It's, it's a difficult area to get into. And what we've seen are the, the growth of um, really specialist investors, um, you know, who have really focused on this area and are now beginning to sort of, um, how would you say, invest in um, in CDMOs. And we, we've, we've seen that, you know, there have been many um, CDMOs which have been um, traded um, recently. And um, some of these have, um, you know, have gone from private ownership to private ownership. But there have been some examples recently, and Resi Farm is a perfect example of a publicly listed CDMO, which um, was just taken private by EQT, which was a, pri- a Nordic private equity company. So, so really, investors are now focused on this area and are essentially investing in it, putting money into it. And what they're doing is they're not only investing in the area, but they're also driving M&A. Once they've made an acquisition, then the next step is, to, you know, can we add to this by putting other sort of companies at it, doing what we generally describe as bolt-in-ons and fold-ins, which um, is either adding more capacity or just sort of adding additional um, different sorts of capacity to your business. So the, 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 this is clearly going on at the moment. And in terms of your question about the next two to three years, there is nothing that we see which is really going to um, um, stop that. I think the only thing which really could impact on it will be lack of sort of really candidates for M&A. And, and we, we are now seeing situations where um, we're beginning to ask questions about where the next um, you know acquisition target is going to come from. So, yeah, it, it, it's certainly a very, very sort of active area at the moment. And healthcare markets in general, I mean, they can be viewed as highly consolidated, but that's certainly not the case in this highly fragmented CDMO sector. I mean, I think the figures are that the the top companies in the segment account for only about 15% of the overall market. What kind of challenges does that kind of fragmentation present to potential investors seeking to create value? Well, I think it creates opportunity because um, I think the natural sort of... uh, if you look at the um, um, some of the big um, clients for these um, CDMOs, they're, they're the, the, the pharmaceutical companies, and in general, pharmaceutical companies are they're always trying to um, I would um, focus their um, suppliers. You know, the, you know, a big pharmaceutical company can have three hundred suppliers. You know, their their procurement people would like to get that down to less than a hundred. So in the CRO sector, we've seen the um, um, development of these really sort of big CROs um, whose really purpose is to supply services to the big pharmaceutical companies. You would naturally expect that to happen in the CDMO sector. 
And there is, a, as you've indicated, there is a huge amount of scope to do it. But frankly, people have been saying this for the last 20 years, and it doesn't seem to happen. And there are many sort of good reasons why that may be the case. I think fundamentally, the technologies are completely different. And although we talk about the CDMO space as, you know, as a single business sector, I think within that, there are widely differing technologies and different companies. Fundamentally, um, an API company is it's completely different from a secondary manufacturing company. And this sort of degree of specialization makes it very, very difficult, I think, sometimes to bring these companies together in a single large, all providing, all CDMO. What I think we are going to see is certainly the big investors will attempt to do this. They will attempt to sort of consolidate and they will attempt to grow. And there certainly is a lot of scope to do that. It's just difficult to do and has proved challenging. And what we tend to see, the the other resistance to this is, although I think sort of conceptually, pharma companies would like to have um, many, many suppliers. I think the situation is different for um, CDMOs because once a pharma company puts business into a CDMO, it tends to be locked into that CDMO for a long period of time. And this is different from, say, a CRO where they're doing clinical trials and they can sort of do the clinical trial, but they can always then step on to somebody else for the next clinical trial. I think for manufacturing, you're locked in for a long time. And one of the concerns we've seen with or we, we hear reflected from pharma is they don't want the CDMOs to become too powerful. They don't want them to sort of dictate too much the terms that they're going mm-hmm. to have. And I think there is a sort of, um, although they will openly desire to have fewer suppliers, in reality, I think they're prepared to have multiple suppliers as long as those suppliers are not sufficiently strong that they will challenge them in terms of pricing etc we often hear that the holy grail of the sort of the full service one stop shop cdmo cdmos often embark on MA activity as a way of becoming more vertically integrated being able to offer all those services and capabilities along the value chain kevin is there a future for the medium-sized cdmo or are we looking at a future which is going to be dominated by large cdmos and then much smaller specialist or geographically focused cdmos running alongside them it's interesting because we we've um, looked at the concept of the vertically integrated cdmo and i think it looks superficially attractive but you you've got to remember that um cdmos who do api manufacturing and CDMOs that do secondary manufacturing. And even within secondary manufacturing, you have sort of sterile fill and then maybe oral solid dose. These are almost completely different types of businesses. And generally speaking, I think what we're tending to find at the moment is that conceptually it's attractive to a biotech to say, well, you know, we can not only supply your um, API, but we can also make the pills as well, which go along with it. But in practice, what tends to happen, particularly with large pharma, is that they will go to specialist API manufacturers to manufacture the API. 
and then they will go to specialist um, secondary manufacturers to actually make the drug. And in some cases, this can include packaging, but in other cases, they will take them to um, specialist packaging firms if, if, if there's a requirement. So it tends to be a fad. And at the moment, I think the fad at the moment is to have highly specialist API producers. What we're seeing is that um, API producers are acquiring more API capabilities and more API companies and secondary manufacturing companies are looking for other secondary manufacturing and there are examples but I would say not as many as we have seen say 10 years ago of companies who are sort of API manufacturers who are seeking to buy um, secondary manufacturing or get into that Um, but I think there is a point at which you become so big that you can't do that purely by being a secondary manufacturer or um, an API manufacturer. You ha- you have to do a, a bit of both. And one example of this would be Thermo Fisher, who who have been acquiring. They're not traditionally known as an API company, but they have been buying API assets um, from Large Pharma, from Roche, and from GSK. One final question, Kevin. You mentioned before about the COVID-19 pandemic and how it highlighted the important part that manufacturing had to play in the industry's response to it. Are there any other impacts that the pandemic has had on, well, consolidation in the CDMO sector? So first of all, I think speaking as somebody who's always worked in the pharmaceutical industry or in the uh, life sciences industries, um, I, I think it has rejuvenated the image of, you know, the life sciences industry. Um, I, I felt in the past that, you know, other industries like finance and tech were seen as being more interesting and and more sexy, I suppose, um, um, to, to people coming into the industry. I, I think the fact that um, the, the, the pharmaceutical companies and the biotech companies have stepped up in the way they have done the way that they've worked together to really sort of innovate to bring these vaccines to market as quickly as they have done have really sort of um, transformed the impact of the industry and i think i think in terms of investor sentiment it's made them more attractive and more interesting um i think it's inevitable that um Governments are going to put more money into healthcare now. Um, I know that there was always very much a limit on what could be um, funded, um, but I think the the realization that um, innovation in life sciences can really change not only sort of uh, you know how we respond to things like COVID, but I I think in the background there is a revolution going on with really the treatment of cancers at the moment and. And we we are beginning to see maybe the this realization within government putting money into healthcare is actually a very good investment, and maybe we should put more into it. And I think investors will follow that um, that trend. So I think probably for the next few years, I I I feel that um, COVID has really put a large amount of accelerant on the healthcare, the life sciences um, fire at the moment. And I think it will burn brighter for many, many years. There are limits to what we can actually spend on healthcare. And again, there will be challenges down the line. But I think at the moment, certainly for the next few years, and particularly in the current situation, you know, I think um, healthcare is in life sciences is going to benefit from really the catastrophe, which was COVID-19. I think with retrospect, 
particularly with the, uh, the way in which the vaccines have been brought to market so quickly, it could have been so much worse. I think is is probably what it was. and and that that that's a consequence of really what the pharmaceutical and uh, biotech and and the academic groups which have been associated with life sciences, you know, the cooperation and the impact has been profound. So certainly that sentiment and investor sentiment, I think, will follow this for the next few years. Kevin, it's been a great pleasure to talk to you today and thanks for sharing all your insights with us. Thank you as well. And it's been a pleasure to speak to you as well. That's all we've got time for today. Thank you for listening to the podcast and please do head to cphi-online.com for lots more news, features and analysis on the latest developments impacting the global pharmaceutical supply chain. Our next podcast in the series will be coming to you soon. In the meantime, goodbye and I wish you a pleasant day ahead. Music